Well, good morning once again. We're going to, this morning, uh, start a short series on the marks or the, the pillars of a true church. Bob Godfrey, in reflecting on the Reformers, rightly identifies three marks of a true church. He identifies those marks as he reflects upon what the Reformers said as preaching, uh, the sacraments, or as we prefer to call them, the ordinances, and by that he means, and we mean, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which of course we're going to participate in the Lord's table together this morning, and church discipline. Those are the three sort of pillars that uh, Bob Godfrey and, and he would say uh, the Reformers identified as three pillars. Uh, we're also going to add to that, and our purposes, we're going to talk about church polity. That is the organization of the church. But today we're going to focus upon the grace of the word preached. The grace of the word preached. So uh, turn, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first four verses together. I was surprised to find that uh, in all my 23 years of being in full-time ministry, as I searched through my files, at least ones that I still have access to after 23 years, uh, that I didn't have any sermons on 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. It's very central to what we believe and teach at Fellowship Bible Church about preaching the Word. And so um, it was interesting to me that I couldn't find any old uh, uh, files on that. And so, uh, But it is something that's super central to what we do here, and so I'm excited to preach this this morning. But let me read to you, as you remain seated, our New Testament reading for this morning, which is our text from 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I read an extra verse there, but it's within the context. That's okay. Uh, May the Lord add his blessing to the New Testament reading. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, this morning we know that your Holy Spirit inspired these words in the original autographs and Lord, we're so thankful to have a translation of the Scriptures in our language. And Lord, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would attend our time by illuminating our eyes and our hearts to an understanding and application of these truths. And that, Lord, you would comfort and convict us even as we study together the idea of your Word and your Word preached and how that is to be a part of a faithful church. So we thank you, Lord, for those who have gone before, who have faithfully preached your word, those upon whom, whose shoulders we stand as we even speak on this subject, including the Apostle Paul and Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Lord, we could say so much about your word this morning, and we pray, Lord, that though we could say so much, that we would focus in and zoom in on 
the truths that are in this text and that we would see the importance of this this morning. So I pray that you would continue to humble me, get me out of the way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reformers who held to at least two of the pillars, uh, the preaching and the ordinances, um, we'll talk about these in the coming weeks, and though he would definitely agree discipline was necessary, is one reformer that many of us are familiar with named John Calvin. As to Calvin's dedication to the, the first concerning preaching, John Piper writes the following. Calvin's preaching was one of a kind from beginning to end. He preached steadily through book after book of the Bible. He never wavered from this approach uh, for, to preaching for almost 25 years of ministry in St. Peter's Church of Geneva. With the exception of a few high festivals and special occasions on Sunday, he took always the New Testament except for a few psalms on Sunday afternoons. During the week, it was always the Old Testament. Continuing with Piper's quote here, to give you some idea of the scope of Calvin's pulpit, he began his series on the book of Acts on August 25th, 1549, and ended it March 1554. After Acts, he went on to the epistles to Thessalonians, 46 sermons. Corinthians, 186 sermons. The pastoral epistles, 86 sermons. Galatians, 43 sermons. Ephesians, 48 sermons until May 1558. Then there's a gap when he was ill. In the spring of 1559, he began the harmony of the Gospels and was not finished when he died in May of 1564. On the weekdays during that season, he preached 159 sermons on Job, 200 on Deuteronomy, 353 on Isaiah, 123 on Genesis, and so on. One of the clearest illustrations that this was a self-conscious choice of Calvin's part was the fact that on Easter Day, 1538, after preaching, he left the pulpit of St. Peter's banished by the city council. He returned in September 1541, over three years later, and picked up the exposition in the next verse. Piper goes on to describe the reason for this. Why this remarkable commitment to the centrality of sequential expository preaching? Three reasons are just as valid today as they were in the 16th century. First, Calvin believed that the word of God was a lamp that had been taken away from the churches. He said in his own personal testimony, Thy word, which ought to have shown all thy people like a lamp, was taken away or at least suppressed as to us. Speaking, of course, in regard to the Reformation and the need of the Reformation, correct? Calvin reckoned that the continuous exposition of books of the Bible was the best way to overcome the fearful abandonment of God's words. Second, his biographer T.H.L. Parker says that Calvin had a horror of those who preached their own ideas in the pulpit. He said, when we enter the pulpit, it is not so that we may bring our own dreams and fancies with us. He believed that by expounding the scriptures as a whole, he would be forced to deal with all that God wanted to say, not just what he might want to say. Third, he believed with all his heart that the word of God was indeed the word of God and that all of it was inspired and profitable and radiant with the light of the glory of God. So says that rather long quote there from John Piper. I couldn't say it better myself. I would simply be copying what he said. And it is that grace of profitability that we will study together this morning. Let me just pause for a moment and define something for you because you may be unfamiliar with it, though it is what happens here most every week 
at Fellowship Bible Church, which is expository preaching. What is that? There's many sort of things that could fit inside that category, but generally we think of it as preaching sections of the Bible sequentially through books of the Bible. So verse-by-verse exposition is sometimes what it's called, but we certainly talk about it in the sense of preaching through whole books of the Bible. And even though we, from time to time, even as we're doing this uh, next four or five weeks, preach topical sermons, you will find that they are from a text, not just a single text and then springboard off into other things, but typically we are talking about even so doing so from a context. So here's the main point for us this morning as we consider 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4 and the grace of the word preached. And this is written for you on the back of your bulletin uh, or if you happen to be at home this morning, which uh, we long for you to be with us, dear saints, that are unable to gather with us as of yet. It is in the email that Lori sent to you. There is a means of grace which is important for the church in the preaching of the word of God. There is a means of grace that is, <clears throat> which is important for the church in the preaching of the Word of God. Now, just at the moment, let me explain to you what I mean when I say means of grace, because that may not be a terminology that is familiar to you, and or you may be a little bit like, what are you talking about uh, in regard to that? That maybe sounds uh, like something uh, that you're, uh, makes you uncomfortable. Well, when we say means of grace... We don't mean saving grace, but confirming and strengthening the faith of the believers who hear it. Grace strengthens us. It's a a means by which God's grace strengthens us. The preaching of God's word does that. Let me quote to you from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, paragraph 89. It states this, The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. That is what we mean when we say means of grace. We, we often talk about sort of the three stages of salvation, do we not? We speak of justification, that we are uh, saved at a certain point in time. We are made righteous by the righteousness of Christ. We are brought into the family of God. We are justified. We are declared righteous. We are declared not guilty at the same time because of virtue of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That is justification. Then we also talk about sanctification or growth and holiness. Those means by which God grows us more and more into the image of Christ. And guess what, dear ones? That is done by what? By grace. It is done by grace. And so we talk about the means of grace. What, what way is God continuing by grace to grow us up in holiness? And then we think about that final stage of salvation called glorification. Now, if you are justified, you will be sanctified and you will be glorified. There's nothing that can stop that. And your glorification is not based on your sanctification. Your glorification is based on your justification. Your justification is also... The means of your, uh, the, the basis for your sanctification, the, 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 the fruit, the growth and holiness. So how do we do that? That is the point and the purpose of what we're saying this morning or asking this morning. But, but when we're talking about this means of grace or the preaching of the word, why is it so vital? Uh, could God have done this some other way? Well, not knowing the mind of God fully, I suppose he could have, but this is what he has designed to do. Is that by the preaching of the word... Certain things will happen in the lives of believers. And here's what I want us to see this morning. I want us to see three elements of Paul's charge to Timothy. 
three elements of Paul's charge to Timothy. And by this, we're going to see this main point sort of fleshed out this morning. First, we see a solemn charge. A solemn charge. In the first couple of verses here, we see that Paul is charging this young pastor, Timothy, with something. And, and, and again, sort of just to kind of get the context of this book, Paul has written first and second Timothy to Timothy, a young church planting pastor, in order to continue to give him instruction in pastoral ministry. And interestingly, throughout the book of 2 Timothy, he continues to come back to this issue of the Word and the Scriptures, the things that were taught to Timothy at a young age, the, the way in which he was saved because he was um, uh, taught the Scriptures by his mother <clears throat> and grandmother. And, and, and these, this is the thing that, that Paul keeps coming back to continually, including our text this morning. Look at it again with me. Paul speaking to Timothy, I charge you, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. I charge you is the first uh, phrase that we see there. This is not a request. This is not uh, some sort of a plea. This is an exhortation to do something. And, And not just to do something alone, but with certain qualifiers. And we hear that word charge, and we think of the sort of gravitas of that, this idea of of something that is being set forth as something solemn and serious and with great, great gravity. He charges him in the presence of God. He charges him in the presence of God. This brings one aspect of the weightiness of this. This is not in the presence of elders. This is not in the presence of the government. This is not even in the presence of Paul the Apostle, but in the presence of God. In the presence of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God of the universe, the God who has revealed Himself, yes, in some sense by natural law in Romans chapter 1, that men can be without, cannot be without excuse. I think I said that right. They are without excuse. They, they need to recognize that God exists. But, but, but he reveals himself specifically by his word. And what is echoing in the ears of uh, Timothy as he hears this from Paul are the things that Paul has said previously in this letter. And, and so just for instance, if we look up just a bit above this, right before he gives him this charge in verses 16 and 17 of of 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we have to keep in mind that there were no chapters and verses then, so it's not like uh, Timothy thought, well, end of that chapter, let's start a new chapter now, and I can't remember the things that happened right before this. No, this is ringing in his ears as Paul says now, I charge you in the presence of God, etc., to preach the word. Look at verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. This is the charge that he gives When he says, in the presence of God, who has breathed out these words. This is is recalling Timothy's mind precisely back to at least this, if not also all the rest of the ways in which Paul has described the scriptures. All scripture is breathed out by God. When you take this word up, Timothy, and you preach it, 
you are to remember that you hold in your hands the very breath of God. We believe, we actually, uh, when we prayed through our confession last Sunday, we talked about the, the Word of God and its authority and the fact that it is inspired. That's what that word inspired, that may, some of your translations may say inspired rather than God breathed. God breathed is a, a fairly literal translation of the idea of inspired. It is breathed out by God. Now we understand from Second Peter that this was done, the men were carried along by the Spirit as they wrote these things down. So we, we understand a little bit of the mechanics of that, somewhat. I mean, we don't get it one for one, 100%. We know that it's not dictation theory. We know that God didn't necessarily always say, write these things down, as he does with um, you know, certain of the apostles or the prophets. But mainly, it's they're writing these things down and mysteriously and supernaturally, as they're doing so, God is working through them by the carrying of the Spirit to write these things down. And that is what makes it Scripture. As I said, many things could be said, but we don't have time to get into all the the theology of this this morning. But the very God who had breathed out these words, according to something Paul has just given previously, is the charge under which and the authority under which Paul is making this charge to Timothy. He also says in the presence of Christ Jesus. Why does Paul say this in light of having just said God? Jesus is God, is he not? He is. The eternal son, yes. But he is the one, it says here, who is going to judge the living and the dead. So you can imagine being Timothy here and listening, or maybe reading through this letter for the first time and coming to this part where it says that, you know, uh, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is, and, and is um, it, it profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, and, and, and now becomes sort of this application. I charge you, therefore, Timothy, in the presence of God. Woo, that just went up a notch. And in the presence of Christ Jesus. Here we go. Who is to judge the living and the dead? The weightiness just got even more. It just increased. Almost always in the New Testament, the term God is in reference to the Father. So Paul adds the weight of the responsibility of that which Jesus will do, which is judge the living and the dead. We might put it this way. Paul is saying to Timothy, and this is true, Timothy, this is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of life and death and judgment. The judge is Jesus Christ. Remember, as we've studied in the Gospel of John together, John chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Notice what he says here in John. Whoever hears My word and believes shall not enter into judgment. We think of Paul's words in Romans chapter 10. How shall they hear without a what? Preacher. We think of well as the 
as well as the, uh, uh, the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Turn with me there. Keep your finger in Second Timothy and make a right-hand turn in your scriptures to Revelation chapter 20. As Paul is saying to Timothy, preach the word. I make this charge to you before God and before Jesus Christ, who is to, to judge the living and the dead. This is a matter of life and death and judgment. Timothy, Revelation 20 and verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is serious, Timothy. This is serious business. This charge that I give you is serious. You can turn back over to Second Timothy chapter 4. By his, not only judgment to the one who is judged living in the dead, but by his appearing in his kingdom. This judgment is certain. And though this will not be some sort of final judgment, some sort of condemning judgment, your works will be judged too, Timothy. Whether they were hay and stubble or gold, silver and precious jewels. The kingdom is coming and this is the stuff of the kingdom as well. Certainly by now we would think that Timothy's attention has been gotten. So what is the charge? As we've already said, preach the word. Preach the word. This is the phrase that is central to the rest of the passage. Preach. Proclaim the word. Herald the word. You know, this is, as I said in our opening a bit, this is the central function for us on Sunday morning. When we gather together to sing and to, to give glory to God, it's wonderful for us to do that. But what are we singing about? We're singing about truth. And certainly the, the centrality of the preaching of the word is what we come to do on a Sunday morning. And it is meaningless if I get up here or any one of my brother pastors gets up here and they somehow just give you as what Calvin was fearful of, our ideas, our dreams, rather than opening the Word of God to you to give it the sense as what we saw from Nehemiah chapter 8. To open the Word of God to express to you what the Word of God says, to, to proclaim the Word of God to you, both in regard to proclaiming the Gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is central, I believe, to the Scriptures, and to unpack the meaning of the sense of it to you. This morning we're talking about the grace of the word preached. It is necessary for the preacher, the pastor, to herald the word for the sake of God's glory, the judgment that is to come, and the glory of Christ's kingdom. The hearers are to be reminded of the gravitas of the 
preached word. This is no menial task. This is something that is done under the weight of the presence of God. The the presence of Christ as the final judge who will appear and will establish his visible kingdom. And to take a page out of the book of the Lord Jesus Christ, woe be to us. (laughs) Woe be to us if we do not do what God has charged us as pastors to do. So what do we do, dear church? We open the word of God and we proclaim it. We proclaim it understanding the the gravitas, the weightiness of the charge, the solemnness of the charge. And we also see not only the solemn charge, but also this sobering call, number two. A sobering call. The last part of verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul says to Timothy, be ready. Be ready. Be prepared. Make sure that you are ready to do this. This is your charge. This is your call, Timothy. You know, we talk about discipleship a lot around here, which is super important. And we talk a lot about functional, formal, and informal discipleship. And some of that informal discipleship we talk about can happen around the dinner table. It can happen around, you know, doing projects, inviting people into our lives. And, and we get to the things of God because that's just part of who we are in Christ. We talk about these things. And what are we doing when we do informal discipleship? We're, we're, we're leaning on the truths of God's Word. We're leaning on those things that we have learned from pastors and preachers and teachers who have gone before us. We're leaning on that. We're ready, in a sense, for that. The preparedness, though, that is the first and foremost preparedness, is the preparedness of the formal teaching that occurs on Sunday mornings. The discipleship that does occur, yes, at a macro level when the pastor, it doesn't have to be me, it could be any one of the brother pastors of our church here, stands up and proclaims the word. Be ready, he says. Be ready in season and out of season. Lanzma in his uh, commentary says this, "Be, Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. That covers the gamut, doesn't it? Whether the time is favorable for the pastor or not. You know, the pastor may get up in the pulpit and may not be, quote unquote, feeling it that day. That's okay. It may be favorable for him in one sense or it may not be. It may be a favorable time or not in the culture. It may not be the season for biblical preaching. Regardless, Paul says to Timothy, be ready. Be ready. The NEB translation, I love the way that they translate this. Press it home on all occasions, convenient or inconvenient. Press it home on all occasions, convenient or inconvenient. There are times where I get up in the pulpit on a Sunday morning and I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm not going to tell you whether or not this is one of those mornings or not. It is. Whether it's convenient or inconvenient. I I love Charles Spurgeon. 
Charles Spurgeon said every time he would step up into his pulpit, he would repeat this to himself over and over again. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he knew in and of himself he was nothing. He needed the Spirit to attend to the preaching of the Word. And and this is the man who is known as the Prince of Preachers. Greatest preacher of any century in the last three. Be ready. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Press it home on all occasions, convenient or inconvenient. And what is this preparedness for? What is the continued understanding of preaching the word here? These other imperatives. He says to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Reprove means to bring correction. To bring correction. Um, I was listening to uh, Alistair Begg preach this this morning. I'm sorry I don't have a cool accent like him, by the way. Um, and uh, he was talking about this idea of bringing correction and, and reproving as to prove or to reprove. Uh, to prove something apologetically, even to someone who is within your own flock. Uh, to, to remind them of truth. To prove once again the veracity and the, and the truthfulness of the gospel. So it could be that. To, to bring correction, not because you're bringing correction like coming down hard on someone, but to say, no, that idea is not properly understood in line with Scripture. Let me help you understand that. Lovingly, gently coming alongside of you. He talks about later on here with patience and teaching. That's what he's referring to. But it could be the correction of lifestyle as well, could it not? Could it be the reprove of um, uh, a correcting one who has gone off course as well? Lovingly calling someone to, to, to come back to truth, as we'll see in a moment he speaks of. The, the idea of rebuke is to warn or to punish. To bring a strong warning to someone's life. To say, no, if you continue down this path, destruction is what meets you at the end of that path. We, uh, we, we talk about warning the, the, the unconverted sinner, do we not, of of the perils of hell as we preach the word. We warn the unrepentant believer of the perils of being out of fellowship with the church. We're going to talk about church discipline in a few weeks and why that is necessary for this whole idea of reproof and rebuke. It is also for exhortation. To encourage, to come alongside is the idea there. And we can see that in both of the cases of reproving and rebuking, can we not? The exhortation, the encouragement. These are the means of grace that God gives us by the preaching of the word. To prove or to reprove, to rebuke, to warn or punish or to encourage. And then notice what he says there. All of these with complete patience and teaching. Quoting Alistair again this morning as I listened, he said, uh, don't you wish it didn't say complete patience? (laughs) Just maybe some patience? No, it's with complete patience and teaching. One way we can think about this is, as the Lord Jesus says, the, the Gentiles like to lord it over those under them. It is not so to be with you. 
And then he washes their feet. This is not done in a domineering or hostile way. The servant of the Lord is not, the, is not to lord it over the flock. The, the preacher is to, yes, preach with conviction and, and, and preach uh, with the seriousness of the charge that has just been given by Paul to Timothy. But the servant of the Lord is not to lord it over the flock. They are to be gentle reprovers, rebukers, and exhorters. And they're to do so with complete patience and with teaching. That's a very interesting phrase there, with teaching. My father-in-law, Dr. Aaron Webb, who many of you know, uh, would say this to me and continues to tell me this all the time. Teach with patience. And if they don't get it the first time, teach again. And if they don't get it that time, teach it again. And if they don't happen to catch it that time, teach it again. I love that. I love his patience and the way that I've learned from him in that regard. The grace of preaching the word is that it is that which convicts and warns and encourages. These are the elements of God's grace in the proclamation of God's word. As the called pastor, whether myself or one of my brother pastors, as we proclaim the word, It is for the sake of reproof and rebuke and exhortation. It is to be done with patience. It is to be done with distilling truths into teachable modicums. And sometimes you hear uh, me use um, things from confessions and creeds and from systematic theologies and these kinds of things where others have gone before us and have distilled those truths into teaching. Uh, That's the idea here. Uh, It it actually is uh, the understanding of, of... of teaching in regard to discipleship. And so we think about that on the macro level and on the micro level. This is what the Word of God is to do. So we pray for the comfort and the conviction of the Spirit of God as we get up and proclaim the Word of God. That it would be that which proves or reproves, that rebukes, that warns, that that instructs, that brings a level of discipline, if necessary, that encourages. It seems, uh, in, in today's vernacular, it seems very meta to be talking about the Word of God as I'm preaching the Word of God. But this is what the Word of God says about itself. So we do this. We preach with these convictions, praying that the Spirit of God would comfort and convict. So we see the seriousness of the call, we see the sobering nature of the call, and we see, lastly, a scandalous stage. A scandalous stage. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. We first notice this word, for, in verse 3. It's a word of purpose. Here is the reason, Timothy, that you ought to be thinking about the Word of God as scriptural, uh, Scripture that is breathed out by God and, and takes so seriously this charge. And to, to, to preach with conviction, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Here's the reason why. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The, re- the reason for all of this is that a scandalous stage is coming in which people will not endure Sound teaching. The word for teaching there is the same word that we use for doctrine. 
not endure sound teaching, not endure sound doctrine. Doctrine has become a bad word, but, but it, it means teaching. The Word of God is meant to be a tool of teaching. As I mentioned just a moment ago, uh, the, the, the early creeds and, and the confessions, uh, they distill theological truths for us to understand God, who He is, and what He requires. Without sound doctrine, mankind cannot be saved. Why do I say it that way? I'm not saying that without creeds and confessions, men, men cannot be saved. But I'm saying, what is it that we understand about the Word of God as we distill these truths down into sound doctrine? We understand that mankind can only be saved in one way. And that for that way to exist, for instance, we have to know that the eternal Son of God is the eternal Son of God, even once He puts on flesh. So when we talk about things like the Incarnation, we're talking about a doctrine. Guess where that was a problem? Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. After the birth of the church in the early centuries, there was a man named Arius running around saying that uh, Jesus is the, the, the highest created being. That he is not God. What did the church do? They say, hmm, Arius may be on to something there. We should not say anything about that. No, they, they searched the Scriptures together and they proved from the Scriptures that Jesus is God. That this is what He said concerning Himself. That this is what needs to be believed by the church. And so they distilled that down into what we call the Nicene Creed. That says that Jesus, the incarnated eternal Son of God, is of the same essence as the Father. That's distilled sound doctrine the word is a grace gift in this sense as well this distilling of truth into that which is sound that which is teachable by the way anytime i stand up here and exposit the word of god to you you are hearing my commentary on what the word of god says and it had better line up with Orthodox Christianity or you need to kick me out. It lines up with the Word of God. It lines up with things like the Nicene Creed and, and, and Orthodox confessions. Not that those are authoritative in the same sense that God's Word is authoritative, but they distill that authority so that we can understand it in bite-sized ways. And it comes from the Scripture And what does Paul say is the problem here? People are not enduring sound teaching. The grace is in this is that there is a time coming where mankind will not endure sound doctrine. This comes in waves. It really does. It comes in waves where, where it's 325 for the Nicene Creed. It, it comes later at the Constantinopolitan Creed. And, and, and then we have to stand up to the, 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 the medieval uh, doctrines that are um, ill and false in the Roman Catholic Church, and that's why the Reformation occurred. I mean, I'm, I'm very much simplifying this. And, and by the way, we know that we as Baptists, with small b, get it right, right? I mean, we had to figure that one out too, didn't we? But we are, in a sense, preparing people for the next wave. 
We were preparing people for the next wave of what's going to come along and try to dismantle or pull the legs out from underneath the truth of God's word. Rather than sound doctrine, they will have itching ears. They will want to hear, they will not want to hear the truth because the truth reproves, rebukes, and exhorts. They will accumulate teachers to suit their own passions, Paul says here. The word often used for lust, for wrong desires. And, and as we hear this, this seems prophetic for our times, doesn't it? This seems prophetic for our times, but this is true throughout the history of the church. Just read 1 Corinthians, by the way, and you'll see that. What is Paul doing in 1 Corinthians? He's reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. What's even Paul doing in the book of, uh, of Colossians? He's telling them, don't listen to people who are telling you these myths about new moons and Sabbaths and all this. You, you, you were founded on Christ, stronger than that. Listen to the words of Jude in verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What is he speaking of there when he says the faith once for all, once for all delivered to the saints? He's speaking of the, 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 the sound doctrine. The things that are contained within our faith. What does he say further? For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. What is that? That's people coming in and playing to the wants and desires of those who have itching ears. They will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. Do we need to fear this? As those who are in Christ, if you're sitting here this morning and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you need to be wary and aware of this? Yes, you do. You too, and and myself, we can be turned away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. For believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, this could be something as popular today as uh, the prosperity gospel. You know, that sounds pretty good. If I do this, then God gives me this. Whether it's hard prosperity like Joel Osteen or Kenneth Copeland or, or, or soft prosperity uh, of some of, of, of the other things that are going on today um, with uh, various other teachers saying, God, God will give you this or do this for you. We need to be wary. We need to be careful. We need to be grounded in solid doctrine. For those not in Christ, this will distract them from the truth. They will continue to walk in darkness because they are distracted from the truth of the gospel. You know, I think that we believe that, that we are in a time where, there's a, where atheism is on the rise. I think if you look around at the culture right now, we see much more of a false spirituality that is on the rise. You know, witchcraft is like really booming right now. I mean that seriously. People who are buying into not just Wicca, but all kinds of, of witchcraft right now. That is huge. It's huge right now. People will be distracted from the truth. What, can we, what, what we can see is that the grace of... The word preached and applied is that it keeps us on track. 
We will not like sometimes that the preaching of God's words pricks our hearts and, and the Spirit brings conviction, but this is the work of the Word. It is for our healing, but sometimes it heals what first it has cut. Don't forget, by the way, the preacher has first borne these wounds himself, and he ought to. This is the grace of the word preached, that we, wouldn't, that we would hear from God who has spoken in his word, and as the word is preached, we would remember that it is for our reproof, for our rebuke, and for our exhortation. It is for our growth and grace, and therefore our walk with Christ. Therefore, if you are in Christ, let us together gather together under the preaching of the word for the grace that it provides us in the matters of walking faithfully, remembering the content of our faith is centered upon the good news and reminding ourselves of these truths continually and walking with each other and reminding each other of these things as we do that. That is why the preaching of the word has a gracious means in our life. However, if you are here this morning and have not trusted Christ, I hope you hear this morning this, if nothing else. The word of God proclaims that Christ is the only way and only means for people to be reconciled to God. You are a sinner in need of God's grace. And that grace comes to you in this way. And that while you were still a sinner and God's enemy, Christ died for you. Turn from your sin, trust in him today. And be reconciled to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We pray, Lord, that it would have an efficacious result upon the hearts of believers this morning. And it would continue to as we faithfully proclaim your word from this pulpit week after week. And for those who do not know you, I pray that they would come to know you through hearing the gospel this morning. And now, Lord, as we come to your table, we pray that you would come and meet us here as we partake. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.